Have you ever had to deal with cowboy builders? You know what I'm talking about. You know the sort of people who keep Dom Littlewood in a job. Maybe somebody never turns up when they say they will, or somebody cuts corners, or someone finds something wrong when you're quite sure actually there wasn't anything wrong with that when you asked them around. There's not much worse in life than a dodgy builder. And if you ever have half an hour to kill, um, search online uh, for bad builders or construction fields. I have to confess, some of the things you'll see are pretty ridiculous. I don't know how well you can see that window that definitely doesn't fit into that gap. But I have to warn you, it's a bit of a rabbit hole um, because the internet has a plethora of disastrous images of you know, stairs that go nowhere or a builder who's put in steps in front of a garage so you can't drive the car up. You get the idea. Uh, you could waste away a lot of time looking at them. But you probably noticed in what we read uh, from the Bible today, we have probably one of the most famous examples of a dodgy builder, or as Jesus calls him, the foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash, or great was the fall of it. Now, some people have tried to debate this, whether um, Jesus was accurate in what he said, because if you use sand the right way, it actually isn't a bad material to build on, but that, that would be missing the point of what Jesus said. Um, the people who Jesus was speaking to, and the first people who read Matthew probably, um, were Israelites, so they knew exactly um, what Jesus was saying here. But if we flick very quickly over to Luke's gospel in chapter 6, Luke's first reader was a man called Theophilus. Um, we don't know exactly who he is, but it's a Greek name, so he probably isn't an Israelite, um, and neither are we. So it's pretty helpful to us because Luke gives us a little bit more information. He says that the wise man was one who dug down deep and laid his foundation on rock or on bedrock, but the foolish man, he is one who built his house on the ground, on the sand, without a foundation. You see, the difference between these is not so much about the material used, but it was about whether the builder used a foundation or not. So when we come back to Matthew, which we're focusing on this morning, when Jesus talks about the wise builder who built his house on the rock, a foolish builder built his house on the sand, what his listeners would have understood, so what we need to understand, is it's not so much the material, but the foundation. The wise man digs down to the bedrock, he lays a good foundation, but the foolish man didn't bother. This was the Middle East in ancient times, it was sandy and dusty everywhere. So the foolish man building his house on the surface, on the sand, doesn't have a foundation. And it's not that the wise man is especially smart, he's just competent. And the foolish man, well, what he does, not to put too fine a point on it, is almost unthinkably daft. I imagine those who were sitting around Jesus had a little laugh to themselves at this point. It really is quite ridiculous that any builder worth his salt would build without a foundation. When the storm comes, obviously, great is the fall of that house. So, who is the wise builder? Who is the foolish one? Um, if you're like me and you know, went to Sunday school as a child, then the answer you have in your head, because it's the answer I had in my head, is that if you trust in Jesus and you build your life on him, then you know what, you'll be able to weather the storms of life. But that's not actually who Jesus says the wise builder is. Look with me again at, at verse 24 of Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into the, practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. 
the parable isn't so much about giving your life to Jesus or trusting him. It's more to do with obeying him, putting his words into practice, not just to hear them, but to do them. Then, if you do that, you're like the wise man who built his foundation in the bedrock. But if you hear him and you don't do anything about what you hear, then you're heading for disaster. So to be a a wise builder in our lives, it's about knowing Jesus, both as our Savior, yes, but also as our Lord. I think all too often we want to know him as our Savior and our friend. We love that. But we're not always so keen on him being our Lord, are we? If we're honest, that's true because that's when it gets hard. We, we like the grace bit. We like him saving us. We like to know we belong to him and that he's with us and that he's guiding us and that he's our friend and we can turn to him. He's our savior and friend. But our Lord, well, that's, that's hard because all of these words that we read came at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and it's a pretty demanding sermon. Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, at best, we like to be peacekeepers. You know, we just try to get through life and we'd be the best citizens we can be and that's very noble and all that but Jesus calls us to be peacemakers those who actively go to people who we would not normally have contact with or peace with and reach out to them that's hard Jesus tells us to love our enemies Jesus tells us that when we get a slap on one cheek we should be ready for a slap on the other and we should accept that Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart and to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It's hard to make that a priority in our lives at times. Jesus says that we should treat a lustful look as if we'd committed adultery in our hearts and angry thoughts as if we'd committed murder in our hearts. It's pretty tough going. But we don't get the benefits of Jesus being our savior without the demands of him being our Lord. Let me say that again. We don't get the benefits of Jesus being our savior without the demands of him being our Lord. Think about it when Jesus sent out the disciples to make more disciples, we call it the Great Commission. The first thing he commanded them to do was to baptize the new new disciples in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And those waters of baptism, that, that signifies them being born again, being washed clean, being saved. But the second thing Jesus commands them to do is that they should be taught to obey everything that he has commanded him. It's fundamental. It's, it's right there in the Great Commission. It's not an optional add-on. But if you're anything like me and you really sit and think about that, it pokes a bit of a sore spot this morning because we find it hard. And yet Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So I warned you, this sermon is, is difficult. It was difficult for me this week. Justine's in crash, but she would tell you. Um, I've been tied up in knots at different times this week. But I also hope that we'll be encouraged this morning. Because I read some words of encouragement earlier, and I do hope they are encouraging. That this is the love of God, that yes, we keep his commandments. But his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. When we have faith, we we have victory over sin and the things of the world. But we live in the in-between, between the time that Jesus won the victory over this world and sin and death, and the time when he finally returns and puts everything right. 
No wonder Charles Wesley wrote those words. Finish then your new creation. Let's, let's get to that new creation because we live in the in-between and it's difficult. We already have victory over sin and yet we still sin. We already have victory over sickness, but we still get sick. We already have victory over death and we have hope when somebody who trusts in the Lord passes on. And yet death is still a reality for us. We're still in the fight because we're waiting for that new creation that Jesus is bringing about. And that's the reality of our Christian experience. We enjoy victory over sin. It's no longer our master, but yet we still struggle against it. But because of that victory that John talks about, he can say that our obedience isn't burdensome. As much as this sermon is hard this morning, it's not meant to, to lay a burden on you because it's a joy to obey because we've overcome the world already and we're fighting from a position of victory, of already belonging to that new kingdom. So this morning, I do hope that we're challenged as we look together at these pictures Jesus gives us, all these pictures at the end of the chapter here of what it looks like to obey him. I do want us to be challenged, but I also want us to be encouraged, not discouraged. Because as much as these pictures of obeying Christ, of being that builder with a foundation, well, that, that should challenge us as people call to obey our Lord, but they shouldn't discourage us. Because every time we see our failure to do them, we can see that failure is nailed to the cross. And we can't lose sight of that. So where have we got to this morning? Well, we have this parable, the one we're focusing on, of the wise builder and the foolish one. It's all about obeying Jesus, not just hearing his words, but doing them. And the difference between the two options is that in obeying Jesus, we make for ourselves a foundation. So our faith, as it expresses itself through that obedience, through acts of love, gives us the solid grounding in Christ for the storms of this life. But a faith whose life is not changed at all, really is no faith at all, gives us no foundation. And when the storms of life come, it ends in disaster. The Apostle James says that faith without works is dead. So how do we get this foundation? What does, what does doing this actually look like? Well, we're not going to delve into all these pictures um, this morning, or we'd still be here this time next week. But thankfully, um, in what we read, Jesus does give us a number of pictures of what this looks like. And we're going we're to focus in on just a few of them. So firstly, obeying Jesus will put us firmly in the minority. Obeying Jesus will put us firmly in the minority. Look with me again where we started in, in verse 13 of Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The narrow road of, of obeying Jesus will put us at odds with much of the world around us. As we obey Jesus, the reality is we should expect to be heading the opposite direction from a lot of the people around us. That shouldn't worry us. Um, on the whole, you know, I think democracy is, is a wonderful thing, but the majority isn't always right. How many times in recent history has a majority of people voted in a government only to find them to be completely incompetent or even corrupt? I'll not name names. The one and only time in my life that I went paintballing once was enough. The bruises were not worth it. Um, but it was at a stag do for a friend of mine. And I remember in the, first, the very first game, I think there were 16 of us, and we were put into two teams of eight. And the rules were very simple. Uh, when you got hit, as I did often, 
you were out and kind of last team standing wins that kind of idea. Now my team of eight, seven of us were hopelessly bad, including myself. I was the first out. Um, so seven of us were put out straight away and that left one on our team against eight on the other team. But that one, no one you know, was a trained police marksman. And he came out on top. We won. And the point is very simple. Just because you're in a minority doesn't mean that you're wrong. It, it doesn't mean that you're on the wrong side of history. It, it doesn't mean that you give up. Um, thankfully, he didn't. It doesn't mean you capitulate when the world around us says it has moved on. And this, this has been the experience of Christians all through history. Sometimes we like to think that, well, you know, a generation ago, you know, Christianity was kind of on top, and now we're becoming marginalized. And, and that's the case to a certain extent. But even when this country was supposedly a Christian one, it was actually often the minority who were fighting to obey Christ. It was a minority of people who wanted the Bible translated into English, a minority wanted to abolish slavery while the majority either opposed them or, or just kept quiet, didn't go out of their way to get involved, didn't want to rock the boat. The road is narrow and the gate is small and only a few find it. You probably don't really need me to outline some of the issues um, with, in which Christians are in the minority today. But even apart from the, the big obvious ones, the ones that are prominent in the media, as Christians we should expect that fundamentally we will, have, we will live our lives differently from people around us. Because if Jesus is the person that we're following, and if knowing and obeying him is, is our priority, then everything about us is going to be a bit different. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, and what our priorities are in life. So we're going to end up with different views from the world on, on a whole host of things, on the acceptability of lust and on viewing pornography, on relationships in general, on divorce and remarriage, on how acceptable it is or, or how it is acceptable to speak about other people maybe behind their back, about control of our bodies, on what substances it's acceptable for us to take or not to take. Others, some will enjoy um, alcohol in the world, some Christians, some will enjoy that in moderation, some will maybe abstain from it altogether, depending on their conscience and their knowledge of their own bodies. But we know it's something, as Christians, that we don't want to become slaves to. We'll end up with views on organizations that it's acceptable for us to be associated with or not. And of course, we might end up with different views to the world on things like marriage and gender and end-of-life care. Now, it's not my intention this morning to stand up here and wag my finger and rant about any of those issues in particular, but it's simply my intention to point out that Jesus says that the way is narrow and the gate is small, but he instructs us to enter through the narrow gate. Now, as we do that, I do need to say that that is not a call from Jesus to be unkind to anybody, to be nasty, to be obstinate. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's what we're called to do. Elsewhere in Philippians 4, Paul tells us to let our reasonableness be shown to everyone. That's not the world's way. The world wants to silence views that it disagrees with. They say that if you believe marriage is between a man and a woman, then you're a homophobe. They say if you don't accept the current social narrative on gender, and in fact, if you 
pretty much as much as mention the reality of biological sex, then, then you're transphobic. If you're pro-life, then, well, you just hate women. You want to deny them something that's their right. You're a bigot. You shouldn't be allowed a platform. And as Christians, we need to work really, really hard at all of this because the way is narrow. It's hard. This digging of a foundation, it requires work. We need to show gay people that we don't hate them, not just say it because we're good at saying it, but we need to show it. That doesn't mean we, we, we flinch from our view on marriage, but we love people God calls us to love. It can be a difficult road, but it's a powerful road. Months ago now, um, one of our old friends from, um, from school, um, to be honest, we've drifted away from them, but they had a, a civil marriage ceremony and it was, it was two women. And our friend, um, she didn't invite us to the wedding. Um, now she wasn't being nasty to us or anything. We genuinely have drifted apart um, a little bit and maybe she wanted to spare us the, the conundrum of inviting us. But you want to see the look on her face when we showed up at her house with a present. Now, you can debate whether we were wise to do that or not, but let me tell you this. She knows, she knows where we stand on marriage. We've never hidden that from her. We've spoken openly about it. But she also knows that we love her. And it's a hard road to navigate. It is difficult to navigate. As a Christian, what do you do if you get that invitation? What do you do if a friend tells you something about themselves or their position on a moral issue that you know isn't in agreement with Jesus? Well, the way is narrow. We've got to stick to the narrow way, but we've also got to love. We need to find a way to do both of those things. As I said, we need to work hard. That might be getting ourselves equipped with information. Uh, recently, uh, because of a, a friend of a friend, I've been reading a lot of information about gender dysphoria. Because wherever you come from on the issue of gender, most people agree that, that the whole issue of transgenderism does stem from gender dysphoria. So I've been reading some medical stuff, some NHS advice, that sort of thing. And I might disagree with some of it. I might disagree with some of the interpretations or definitions or ways of dealing with it. But I want to understand it. I want to understand it so that when I meet people who are struggling with their gender identity, I know what they're talking about. And whilst I'm not going to compromise on my own beliefs, I'm also not going to say something that really hurts them. As a church, we need to love and care for people from the LGBT plus community. We need to practically help those facing crisis pregnancies. We need to offer a better alternative to those who have chronic conditions who think their best option is just to end their life. If we want to reach out to this community, if, we, if we're serious about the Hello Neighbor initiative, we, we need to work hard not just to claim, but to show people that we don't hate them. But we do also need to hear what Jesus says. We need to heed his warning because so far we've talked about the narrow road, but he says that the wide road leads to destruction. The house built without a foundation, without obedience to Christ, it falls. It falls with a great crash. So these issues do matter. Sometimes we avoid them. They're not easy to stand up and preach about. Perhaps they're not easy to talk um, to non-Christians about, but they matter because obedience to Jesus matters. Paul says again in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I want to say two things as we leave the the narrow road behind. Firstly, if if you've been wildly offended by what I've been saying in the past few minutes, I I want you to realize and and recognize that it's it's my job to, to teach the Bible. I'm teaching what I believe the Bible teaches about this. But at the end of the day, if you're offended, you're left with a question because it doesn't really matter what you think about what John McCracken thinks or about any of that because I'm not anybody. It doesn't matter in the grander scheme of things what position the Presbyterian Church in Ireland takes on the particular issues. On some level that's important, but in the grander schemes it doesn't matter because in the bigger scheme of things what matters is what Jesus says because he's the one who calls us to obey. In Luke's gospel, when when this parable is told, Jesus starts out by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why would you call him Lord and not do what he says? So if you're offended this morning, the question you're left with is not so much, do I have a problem with John or Ravenhill or PCI or whatever, but do I have a problem with Jesus? It's hard. I've said that several times this morning. I'll keep saying it. It's difficult. But I want you to know that if you ever want to talk to me about any of this, even if your views are very different to me, I'd be very happy to do that. I'd be very open to do that. I'd be very happy if you could educate me further on any of it. But I do believe we have to think very seriously about the authority of Jesus. And the second thing I want to say as we leave the narrow and broad roads is this. If you're sitting here this morning and you or someone you love are are affected by these things, maybe finding yourself attracted to to people that you think you you shouldn't or or you have some sense of unease about your gender or maybe it's one of the other issues I mentioned like alcohol or divorce or, or anything, I would extend the same invitation to you to come and speak to me. I know Marty would do the same. It would be confidential, of course, and my number's on the church website if you don't have it, because I would love to walk alongside you, to share your burden. I promise I won't lecture you, I won't condemn you, whatever your thoughts are, and I won't wag my finger at you. I do tend to talk with my hands, but I'll really try not to wag my finger at you. If you're affected by any of this, the only thing it tells me is that you're a human being, descended from Adam, just like me. Obedience to Christ, it's the narrow way. It will put us firmly in the minority. Jesus gives us two other pictures of what it looks like to obey him. Now our time is running out. So suffice it for now to say that the picture of good and bad fruit, well, that tells us that our obedience to Christ isn't something that we can hide. Fruit is something that is picked from a tree and eaten. So if other people around us can't sense that we're being obedient to Christ, well, then that's a problem. If our life is full of bad fruit, if we keep making decisions that we know wouldn't please the Lord or put other things as a priority over him, maybe not coming to church, not praying, not spending time with him, time in his word. Well, that's another serious problem and it's one that we need to address because Jesus says that that way also leads to destruction. Bad trees are cut down and put in the fire. But it's also not about empty religion. It's not about doing those things just for the sake of them. We read of those people who came to Jesus on the last day saying, Lord, we preached and we prophesied. We did all sorts of things in your name. But Jesus says that he didn't know them. And they're sent away from Jesus. And the reason why they're sent away 
is because we see in verse 21, they don't do the will of the Father who's in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not about empty religion either. Obedience to Jesus isn't a tick box, tick box exercise, but it flourishes out of a living relationship with the living Lord. But I do want to finish this sermon uh, with encouraging words because there's a great reward. There is a great reward for those who know and obey Christ, who put in the hard yards, who work to have this foundation. Jesus says, verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Jesus is saying something very powerful, I think, about those who know him as Savior and as Lord. He's not saying that problems won't come in this life because the storm comes to both the wise builder and the foolish builder just the same. He's not saying that in this life we'll enjoy material things uh, more than anyone else because apart from the foundation issue, I, I think we can assume that the materials the foolish builder used were just the same as those the wise one used. But when the storms of life come along, what happens? Well, the foolish builder, it's complete disaster, isn't it? The storm has its full effect on him. He has no protection. He's fully exposed. It's disaster and it's destruction. But the wise man, he's safe. He's saved by the foundation, saved by a life surrendered to Jesus as his savior and his master. God is the ultimate wise builder. When he looked at this world that he had built himself, he saw that others had come in and, and had damaged it. Because we as human beings would rather not obey him. We'd rather do our own thing. We would rather be on that broad road with everybody else. But God could see that that was leading us to destruction. So he became that help. He sent his son into the world to take our sin on himself, receiving the punishment for it so that we could be redeemed, bought, redeemed to, to instead walk the narrow road that leads to life, to be part of that new kingdom that he's building, to be the people he intends for us to be, to be fully, fully human, walking God's way. Don't settle for the work of a cowboy builder. God is the wise builder. He's designed us. He reaches out to us in Christ. It's not burdensome. As much as talking about some of these things can be really difficult, ultimately when we surrender to Christ, it's not burdensome. It's joyful because it's what we were built for. The call today is to know him as your savior, the one who has liberated you from this broken world and crown him as king and Lord and by the knee, acknowledge who he is accept his love, and respond in love by living for him. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we acknowledge that Jesus' words are challenging for us today because broad is the road and, and many are on it. But Lord, we know that you teach that route leads to destruction. And instead, you've called us to a long pilgrimage on a narrow road with a narrow gate. But Lord, you call us to enter through that gate. 
Thank you that in your love you do call us to enter in, to enter into your kingdom, to enter into fullness of life, both in the here and now and for eternity. Thank you for the great reward that Christ has made available to us if we will put our trust in him. So Lord, help us because we are firmly in the minority in this world, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our schools, in our colleges, wherever we are. Lord, the road is narrow and we confess that we find it difficult. We confess that we find it much easier not to speak up. We find it much easier to go along with what those around us are saying. So Lord, work in us by your spirit. Change us, give us new hearts and new desires, desires which are for you and for your ways. And Lord, would you walk with us on this narrow road? Lord, lead us. Lead us to the ways of life everlasting for your sake. Amen.